Welcome back to So What Does Judaism Say About? Rabbi Rick Fox here is always with the magnanimous Rabbi Mayer Beer, where we try to have conversations about different topics in Judaism and what the Torah says about them and what we say about them. Today we continue our conversation on rabbinical authority. This will be part three. We're trying to understand in rabbinical authority, how does it work exactly? Rabbi Beer, how you doing? Fantastic. So tell us, you know, we've discussed the source for rabbinical authority. We've discussed why the Torah would be set up that way, what God wants or expects from us. How exactly now does it work? Now we're, we, we've got the ideas. Let's put it into practice. Well, they have this billionaire's resort somewhere out in Colorado in an mm. undisclosed location under mm. a mountain and all the... There's a lot of smoke and back rooms. There are no front rooms in this location. It's all back rooms. It's all back rooms. <laughs> it's like where they keep the Adam and then this, then the rabbi's room. <laughs> yeah. And the, you know, they just, just spit it. Rules get spit out, you know. There's like this little, there's a little mechanical arm that just hands out on freshly printed parchment new edicts for the year. This year, you have to always uh, tap your head and rub your belly when you uh, get up in the morning. <laughs> so... How do we get started here? I mean, we've talked about the idea of handing, of handing sort of the keys to how we're going to accomplish a lot of what our mission is here down on earth to the Jewish people themselves. We've talked about the Jewish people accepting upon themselves certain ideas and stringencies. Then there's an idea that just like, we're the humans, we kind of know ourselves, we know what we need to do. How do we put these things into practice? How does it get solidified? Okay, so there are defined rules for how rabbinic law gets enacted. And when we say, you know, rabbinic law, who are the rabbis? Yeah, let's, yeah, 100%. Who are, who are these people? The rabbis, this is a, a point which is, which is very crucial to make, are not people which perpetrate themselves. How do you become an accepted leader and teacher? A community likes you. Meaning it's a meritocracy. Correct. The New York Times interviewed Armosha Feinstein, I believe in 1975 or 1976, somewhere around there. And, you know, they got wind of the fact that he is, you know, the final halachic authority, the final destination for difficult questions. And they asked him, like, how did you attain this position? You know, was there some sort of, you know, group of, you know, 100 people with, with a special license or a card who picked you? Was there a write-in? <laughs> yeah, he's like, uh, I don't know. I, people ask me questions, and they like the answers, and they told their friends, and I guess they like they ask me questions, and I guess they also like the answers. And that's just what happens. There is no centralized committee. It really is, in any given community, the leaders and the best teachers and you know the people who are accepted by the community for their position. Now, there is a, there's a formal way in which a person gets what we'll call accredited. So there was a, an official, what we call smicha, which is rabbinic ordination, uh, which no longer exists in the original form uh, that allowed people to do things like try capital cases and those very rare occurrences when they happened, which we no longer have the power to do. What rabbinic authority now means is a person is supposed to be, is, is a person is not supposed to issue halakhic rulings or just, you know, explaining things until his teachers certify him as being qualified to do so. So essentially it's just like a degree that, you know, whatever school you were in says that, you know, now you've qualified, you're, you, you, you know, you're qualified to, to, to define what the Torah wants and, you know, from your understanding of the source material and, you know, the proper books and etc. And I'm assuming where, where that would take a huge role would be sort of the technological changes over the last century or two and how they apply to Shabbat, for example. When you take a look at a light switch flipping it on and off, you know, I, I remember the, you're like, hey, Rabbi, that's really work? I'm like, 
Well, we we got to define what's going on here. We got to define the technology. We got to define it's not work. What malacha is? That's the word the Torah is talking about. And someone has to explain that technology and have a grasp on it, and also have a grasp on all of the areas of the Sabbath to understand where this might fall into. Exactly. So this brings up another point, which isn't necessary. Which I, I would I would like to give us like an introduction to how you know what we'll call new rabbinic uh, rulings get put into place. But just the whole process of halachic rulings is something. And so we have something like like electricity. So when electricity first became commonplace, 120 years ago or so, 110 years ago, uh, and you know this was a question posed to the accepted leaders of various communities, and as was was and is the practice, if you you're going to answer the question, you're going to write your answer down. It's recorded, so you write down your ideas, your thoughts, your your interpretations, your theories of you know how you know how we apply rulings to new to new situations. And that becomes part of the, you know, what is at the time a current issue. And other rabbis will see your points. They'll write back. And there are books from every era of halacha preserved where people's rulings in real time are recorded. So we have this. And then we don't have an official Sanhedrin, an official Supreme Court anymore. But given a, a couple of years, eventually there will be some sort of common practice that usually is, is, is hammered out. You know, you, you'll see there's a tendency for most accepted authorities to go in a certain way, and that will you generally become accepted practice. You will often have in every generation a couple of standout rabbis who have a certain respect among their peers, and they're very influential. It's not final authority. It's not that anybody's infallible, but, you know, but as a matter of recognition of the level that they're at, and they're usually writing very authoritative responses to any question, and their logic is excellent, is, is you know, the best, and that often will have an outsized influence on any given discussion. So when you have medical ethics, issues that come up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we have issues dealing with how do we, you know, a person wants to have a, an internet business that's self-operating. Can you keep that open on the Shabbat? Does that violate business law on Shabbat? You're going to get onto all these new questions and stuff. You know, the, the questions get posed and they get answered. And all those answers kind of form a loosely held ruling. So there's a really interesting passage in the Talmud which describes... Uh, an example of how we have a general thrust of what we'll call the scholars who have feel a certain way and an exceptional standout. And so the Talmud in Tracte Above Metziah, on page 59, has a story where there was a discussion about the laws of ritual pure impurity that apply to a certain type of oven. We can skip the details of the case. And the majority of sages ruled one way, and there was an exception to this uh, in which there was one rabbi who ruled that this was a problematic. And he, and his name was Rabbi Eliezer, and he said that if I'm right, then all sorts of miracles should, should be performed to prove that I'm right. A tree should, should be uprooted and moved somewhere else. The walls of the synagogue should, should fall down. A stream should flow backwards. And these happen, and the rabbis are unmoved. And then finally he says, if I'm right, then a heavenly voice should cry out that I'm right. And the rabbis are once again unmoved based on a principle of Torah lo he. The Torah is not in heaven. Exactly. So if we have, as best as the leading authorities, the majority opinion can understand, this comes like the collective wisdom, or the best collective wisdom of the generation, even if there's an opinion that disagrees with this, he is, ba is bound by Torah law to follow that majority opinion. Even if he believes himself to be of equal knowledge to any of those rabbis, we have a certain unity, and we're supposed to follow the majority opinion. But the majority of opinion 
has to come from a certain qualified body. Exactly. I so, think that's where things get confusing. So getting here. your rabbinic you know, membership from the Kellogg's Corn Flakes box is not necessarily going to qualify you for being what we'll call an authority. And once again, there is no, there is no official rulings, but this is a matter that like, kind of when you're in it, you feel it like you know in any given community who are the respected people and those respected people know the very respected people and it becomes a, a communal structure of those that are the most respected. And there is kind of a prevailing attitude that, generally speaking, these people are trying to interpret the Torah for its own sake. Meaning they're not saying that, you know, obviously you have to take in every generation its, its issues and might require certain, you know, modifications to make it, you know, certain considerations to be taken in, into place. But ultimately, people that are trying to keep it as it's supposed to be given. So that's kind of like a, like a, like a general feeling you'll get for these people. And then as time goes on, you come up with, you know, a question comes up after 10, 15 Five years sometimes, you'll you kind of feel what is going what is the now common law. And if you're if you're a person who's going to say, like, I'm going to just ignore what everybody else says, you then become an outlier, and that's a problem because you're supposed to be a participant in the community. And even if you can get a quote unquote heavenly voice to prove your opinion, which Rebeliezer did, at the end of the day, the Torah is supposed to be interpreted by the people that are the most passionate about it. And keeping it as they understand it, and that is the way it's supposed to be. Keep it passionate, be and, and I'll add qualified. Yeah, sure. So this is kind of like a loose background for just how questions are answered, and then we can get into you know creating you know new rabbinic rulings, new fences, so to speak. So let's go back to when the first fences you know came into place. You know, Pirkei Avot, Tractate of the of Ethics, first chapter, first Mishnah goes through sort of how the chain comes down from, 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 from Sinai to Moses, who you mentioned before was the first person to put in edicts, then Joshua, then the elders, then the Nevi'im, then this group called the Anche Knesset Hagadola, the men of the great assembly, which included, I believe, Ezra, the scribe, and his, his, uh, his and peers. And the, the last three prophets, Chagah, Zechariah, Malachi. Malachi, right? So there's three prophets in that group. And that group of 100 Mordechai actually from the Perm story was on there. Was in there too. Yeah. So there, so there's a lot of heavy hitters in this group. They sort of set the stage here for kind of how things are going to go in rabbinical authority in terms of rabbinical Judaism from that point onward really. How did that happen? What, what, where did they come from? Why what was going on then that they that they began this process? So that era was an important switch changeover period in Jewish history, when the era of prophecy came to a close. And that era coincided with certain rulings that had to be put into place. They made, they created a formal prayer, which is the Shemona Esrei, the Amidah, because they felt not the spirit of prophecy was, leading the, was leaving the Jewish people, that it was not proper to leave it up to individuals to come up with their own structure of prayer. When the spirit of prophecy existed, people were more more had had a greater ability to tap into the essence of prayer without having a formal structure. They felt that a formal structure was necessary once that era ended. So this is dealing with a new just a new a new period in history, which is the post prophecy era. We can talk about this in another episode, you know, what exactly that meant, how prophecy ended, separate discussion. So 
reacting to the new needs of, of that era. They, they created something. And, and, and they were accepted among the Jewish people. Yeah. Everyone knew these 120 yes. seasons. Yes. And, and how did you get onto this group? How did you get tapped to be in this secret society? They slipped, a, they slipped, a, so slipped when, under your door in the Hill Hall at Penn <laughs> and you, you got to the, go to the, you know, the open house secretly on one of the Wednesday night. So know. when you had a Sanhedrin, there was a system. There would be students who would wait in front of the Sanhedrin and observe it, who are the highest ranked students. And eventually, when members would retire, new ones would get put onto place. You know, so you had. But this body is 120 people. Yeah, so this wasn't a formal Sanhedrin. So this was a group which which came together, presumably once and from all difference. This well, period we, of time. Yeah. Like, so we had in that form, but there, there were similar examples in other situations. There was a in the times of Shammai and Hillel. There was 18 edicts which were put into place. Not, you know, it wasn't 120 members, but it was the house in Shammai and Hillel, which were the two leaning schools of, of teaching Torah at the time, which came together and created a body of, of 18 rulings. So this this was a collection of the leading, or, or, or like, a, like a meeting of the leading thinkers of the time, and they created certain rabbinic rules. Now, does that mean that they can just say whatever they want and just now you have to keep it? The answer to that is absolutely not. That's a great question, and I, and, and I happen to personally love the answer. <laughs> so there are personally, two so conditions for any rabbinic ruling to become part of common law. Number one, it has to be something which, in the words of the Talmud, and I'm quoting from Tractate of Odazara, page 36a, Ain Gozrin Gezer al you cannot create a ruling for the community, L.M. Kane, unless it's something which most people can keep. If it's too difficult... If it's too overwhelming, you are not allowed to create it. And if it's found to be, you know, more than people can handle, it is not binding. You can't create something which the community as a whole can't keep. So that's rule number one. So you, those are very those are subjective. Seems like it, it's not subjective because if if they put it into it, now it's subjective until you do it. But if they create it and they find that it, like it's just too much for people. And there are examples listed that things were just overwhelmingly difficult for people. It then retroactively is not valid. So it's subjective when you're creating it. But if you think subjectively that it's going to work and it ends up being overwhelmingly difficult, it retroactively isn't valid. So that's that's an important safeguard. There's another one, and this is an, like an even stronger one from the Talmud and Tractate uh, Gittin, which says that if the community just decides not to accept it, they're just like, we're not doing this. They theoretically could. They're not going to accept it it also does not become binding. So you have that, like a check and balance from the people who it's going to be quote-unquote imposed on. It's not really imposed. Because if the community as a whole decides not to accept it, it isn't binding. So you have these really like two parts in which you have the leading thinkers, which hopefully are in their position, and that's structurally how it is as a meritocracy, creating ideas that then have to be accepted by the people for them to become binding. Once it's accepted by the people, it's doable, it's found to be doable, the people agree to accept it, then it becomes, then it becomes binding. Nonetheless, it can still, in certain instances, be um, removed by a court that is greater than the court that initiated the ruling. So nothing is necessarily permanent. So we have this system in which you're going to need the leading scholars, the leading thinkers of a generation, covering most of the community, you know, however you represent that, giving out these ideas to the public, issuing them, the community is able to keep it, decides to keep it, and then becomes binding. Right. Wow. Amazing. Very, very cool. 
And then once it's binding, it falls into the rabbinic law, sort of the next generation couldn't go back and so say, if you hey, ha- wait, hey, 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 what happened over here? You know, whoa. Right. Once it gets accepted, it gets accepted unless you have a new court, which is greater than the first court and uses their ability. The, the court themselves can can take it off. But it can't just be removed by the community once the community as a whole is accepted. Are there any examples of this happening in the last 2,000, <laughs> 2000 yeah, years? Sure. There are rulings. Uh, the, the Tom Wilson example, Tractate of Odozara, of certain question about the the rabbis want to do want to do make certain oils non kosher like you know for consumption and it, it just never panned out it just did not become part of of common law and what was the motivation that they wanted to ban these oils there were certain cautious issues like fences and, and then just the community was just like it's just not happening it just didn't it didn't happen there was one ruling in, in there was a certain considerations about bread e- uh, eating bread baked by a non Jewish baker and it was too difficult for that to be kept because people just didn't have enough ways to get their basic sustenance and right. it just did not become common law. Right. Now, a person can accept that as a stringency, but it isn't, it isn't binding. Right. So getting back to the uh, original idea we had that halacha is decided by majority opinion. So let's say on a biblical sense, the interpretation of a Torah passage. We mentioned in the beginning of the first podcast that the source for this all comes down to a verse in the Torah which says you should not veer from the ways of the rabbis to the right or to the left. So if this is what the court assumes or decides is the interpretation for a certain halacha, that becomes binding. Well, let's say they're making a mistake. We don't believe humans are infallible. Right? They could make mistakes. So should we then, so let's say I'm a really great sage and I think a certain thing is absolutely forbidden. I think that carrots are forbidden. They're not. But I think they are. Hypothetically. But the majority of rabbis say conclusively carrots are permitted and we can eat carrots. So I am bound by Torah law to eat the carrots or at least not to tell people not to eat them. Right. Because that's the majority opinion. That's what we go with. But let's say I'm actually right. Do we believe majority rabbis can't make mistakes? They could. It's possible. So the Ran or Benu Nisim has a really beautiful take on this. He says, look, the reality is we need a system. The reality is God wants the human mind to understand it to the best extent that it can. So even if theoretically that carrot isn't kosher because I, the individual opinion, happen to be right and the majority is wrong, the Torah says follow majority opinion. So you're keeping the guidelines of the Torah. So the over-under, so to speak, by keeping the Torah, by keeping the system in place, by not creating divergent ways of of observance, by safeguarding the idea that we have a certain unity to our behavior, is so powerful that that will override any negative effect from eating carrots with spiritual contamination. <laughs> Those sneaky, Those sneaky little carrots. Anything of what's up, Doc, from Bugs, Bugs Money? <laughs> I'm a little fedigude. Yeah. I have a carrot burger. Bugger. Can't do the Bugs Bunny accent that well. <laughs> but you're from Boston. You're so close. Yeah, it's a Brooklyn accent, yeah. <laughs> Boston and Brooklyn are not the same thing. I hear that, I hear that. But there's this beautiful idea that, that at the end of the day, the system works. And all this rabbinic stuff is part of the system. You know, I, I just, if anybody's, you know, if, if anybody were to listen to these ideas, I think you'd immediately start having questions. You know, and, and I think if, if anybody listens to these podcasts and has questions, please reach out. You know, let's discuss this. Let's get you onto a future podcast. These, these ideas are so broad and so like these overarching ideas of rabbinic authority that I'm sure we've left parts out. I'm sure there's parts we didn't explain well. 
you know, love to add on, continue with this. And hopefully this is more of a discussion starter than, uh, you know, this is where the, you know, the buck stops. We did the podcast of medical authority and then you will listen to <laughs> Very interesting. I, I would love to continue as well. Okay. Very good. So thank you so much for tuning in again. This is the third rendition of what's going on in rabbinical authority. And thank you for turning on to So What Does Judaism Say About? See you later. Thank you.